I was working on the campus of UWA uh, as a staff worker. And uh, the, the UWA campus is a very, very nice campus, uh, much nicer than NTU. And, uh, you know, there's a nice campus with a clock tower, and there's this rectangular pond under the clock tower, and there's this big grass patch surrounding the pond where students can just lie down. Now, the thing about Australian grass is that you can lie on it, and then you don't get itchy. Right? Singapore grass, you know, you get itchy, right? Australian grass... Ah, okay, so that may... You must open your eyes where you lie down. But the grass... The grass won't make you itchy, okay? Now, inscribed onto the stone wall are the words, Know yourself. Know yourself. It sounds like Sun Tzu, right? Out of war or something. Know yourself, okay? See, it, it is good advice. And it's a good advice for students to lie on the grass patch, staring up into the sky, spend many hours thinking about this question. Uh, but knowing ourselves is actually quite a confusing exercise. Okay, now how about for us as Christians, how should we answer the question of, you know, knowing ourselves? What should we know about ourselves? Now in Romans, Paul has been giving some answers to that question. Now let's focus in on one aspect of knowing ourselves. Okay, and that was the one that was flashed just now. What, what is our biggest problem? What? This is okay. I mean, they, they, they can remember it. Okay. What? Okay. So, people said global warming. Some people said Facebook. Actually, it was me. Um, okay. According to Romans, according to Paul in Romans, what is our biggest problem? Okay. One, two, three. You'll see out the answer. Okay. One, two, three. Okay. Colleen said what? You and me. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, people think that the answer is sin, according to Romans, but it's not. Huh? It's not, it's not. It's, it's not me, it's not me. Okay, it's not me. Okay, it's, the answer is not sin. The answer is actually God's wrath on sin. Yeah, it, there's a distinction. Because if, if God decided, I mean, if he wanted to, that, okay, forget it, they're sinning, they're rejecting me, I just forget about them, you know, I just, I just leave them be. Then we would just carry on with our, you know, sinful lives, the fallen creation. But, you know, as bad as that would be, it is nothing compared to what the Bible says about God acting against sin in his wrath. So, you know, all of us should know God. Right, chapter 1, Paul says, we looked at creation and it's plain to see the divine nature, invisible qualities about this God. But all of us, we did not acknowledge him. We ignored that inner sense of right and wrong in our hearts. Uh, and so Paul says, therefore, God's wrath is rightly on human beings. This is what we must know about ourselves that we are under God's wrath, that we have rejected and rebelled against this God, that we are enslaved by our passions, that we are making decisions and choices from a corrupted mind, and we will face death and judgment. This is what we must know about ourselves. Now, with Paul's 
verdict of what uh, we are, how will people react to such a verdict? Right. How, how, how would you react to such a verdict? Now, if you imagine a science fiction movie and you know all the astronauts are trapped on an alien mothership, okay, and then they're trying to escape. Okay, so you imagine they're trying to escape, they, they run this way, and then the door boom, closes down. Then they oh no, they're trying to trap us, then they run another way, and then the door closes in, right? Okay. Now, to Paul's verdict. People have tried to run to the, no, 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 I'm not that bad, exit. Some people have tried to run to the, hey, hey, hey I'm a Jew. You see, you know, um, yeah, that's a, that's a Mark Disco thing, sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a Jew. God is cool with me, exit. Okay, but Paul has anticipated exactly where they would run to, to escape from his verdict. And in chapter 2, he has cut off all possible exit routes. Right? There is no escaping this verdict. There is no escaping the reality of our sin and God's judgment. Now, not even for the Jew, who is part of God's chosen people. Now, imagine, imagine Paul, not so much writing a letter, but imagine Paul is saying what he's saying to a group of people. And a group of people who, you know, would be comprised of Jews and Gentiles. Okay. And when he gets to the point in his speech at the end of chapter two, where he says, you know, the Jews are also under judgment, etc., etc. When he gets to that point at the end of chapter two, all the Jews, okay, so imagine the Gentiles are sitting one side, the Jews sitting on another side, all the Jews are, they will be in uproar, they will be off their seat, they'll be protesting. Okay. Raising their hands, their voices in protest. Now here in this section, the first eight verses, Paul will debate with their objection. Okay. Now in this letter, he's doing it with an imaginary object, um, an uh, imaginary representative, and he's trying to affirm in this first eight verses the utter faithfulness of God even in judgment. Okay, so by the time Paul gets to the end of chapter 2, this Jewish crowd will send their representative and they will protest, Hey, verse 1, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? Right, I mean, they're saying, What's the point in being the chosen people of God? What's, what's the point of cutting off the foreskin of my baby son on the eighth day? Right, what's the point if, if you, you know, you say, when it comes to judgment, we Jews will fare no better than the rest of the people. Okay, what's the point of being a Jew? And so Paul answers, much in every way. And first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now let's think about what he's saying here. See, for all people everywhere, Paul told us in chapter 1 that God has revealed himself in his creation. Right? That they, they, they should look at the, the, the vastness and the, the order and the beauty of creation and know something about the God that made it. That's what Paul said, right? But for the Jews, they were given more than just the starry sky and breathtaking mountains. God actually revealed to them in words his will, his character, his plans. They were given the privilege of knowing God's promises. 
See, they didn't just have some vague notion that, oh, there's this creator, supreme being who is, you know, so powerful. They were given the privilege of knowing God personally. Right? They had a personal communication of a God who had entered into friendship with them. And knowing his will and promises, they could so order and live their lives in light of his purposes. Now, this is the, the theme that the first Spider-Man movies tried to convey. You know, if you remember the first Spider-Man movies, the point is, with great power comes great responsibility. Right? That's the whole point of the, the two movies. And for the Jews, it's the same. With great privilege come great responsibility. So it was not enough that they should boast, ah, I got God's word. They had this privilege of God's word. They then had the responsibility of living in light of that word. But the sad truth is that many Jews neglected this responsibility. Many of them were unfaithful to God's word. And this was a fact that few Jews would deny. Because their colorful history was full of how Israel was unfaithful to God. The scriptures that they hold in their hands condemn them of their failure to live up to their responsibilities. And so this gives rise to the next objection in verse 3. So you know this Jewish rap, okay, he gives the next objection in verse 3. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify or cancel out God's faithfulness? Okay, now you need to, to understand this objection. You must bear in mind that God's promise to his people was a promise that he would bless them. Okay, that God had made a promise of, okay, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you great blessing. And so the objector is asking, okay, what if some Jews were unfaithful to God's word? Now, does this mean that God will then be made unfaithful because he cannot fulfill his promise of bringing great blessing? Because some became unfaithful, he cannot bless them. So, if he cannot bless, means he cannot keep his promise, means he becomes unfaithful. Okay, so uh, that's, that's the objection that the objector is raising. And uh, so, the objector is saying, Hey, Paul. Going by your argument in chapter 2, the Jew is going to face God's judgment. So aren't you basically saying that God will turn out to be unfaithful? That he is unable to carry out his promises to Israel? And basically the point is, how dare you, Paul? How dare you say that God is unfaithful? Now, have you come across modern day versions of this type of reasoning? Have you? Okay, now I remember um, a conversation I had during uh, an in-camp training with you know one of my my army men, um, army friends. You know, I was talking to him about the gospel. You know, we had opportunity because you know you just sit around and talk a lot, like, basically. Okay, uh, you don't do very much, and he could not accept that Jesus was the only way. Okay, he 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 said if God were really a loving God, then, you know, I mean, the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, I mean, they, they, they shouldn't just be condemned simply because they didn't know Jesus. 
Right. Now, in other words, what he was saying to me was, why? Okay, according to you, according to the gospel you're telling me, you are implying that God is unloving. You know, you know the implication of what you're telling me about this God, your implication is that this God will end up basically unloving because he will send Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus to hell. And he's basically saying, how dare you? How dare you say that God is unloving? The irony is that this friend happens to be Catholic. Now, Paul's answer in verse 4 is a resounding, by no means, certainly not, not in a thousand years, God forbid. Let, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Right? Not just, not just some Jews end up being unfaithful. Right? Even if the whole world was full of liars, God would still be true. Right? Far from it that our actions or lies would compromise His character. No matter what we do or say, God will remain true to Himself. Is God a God of faithfulness? Is He a God of justice, of love? Then He remains true to Himself regardless of what's happening, regardless of what people are saying about him. Now, if you have any zeal at all for God's name, then this should prove encouraging. Because right right now, there are lots of lies being said about God. Right, So like my Catholic friend and many others like him, right, they are saying, hey, unless God acts this way, where he doesn't throw Buddhists and, and Muslims into hell, oh, he's not a loving God. Unless, they act, unless he acts this way, he's not a loving God. Okay? Slandering God. And then there are others who will say, oh, 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 uh, you know, Christians coming in the name of God and saying, oh, God will cure you. Okay? God will give you this healing. God, God will, God will lift you out of your financial problems. God, God will bless your hands so that the project you touch, oh, you will be able to seal the deal, you know. You'll be this new kid on the block that can, people will go, wow, who are you? You new kid on the block, but you close this big deal, you know. You know, God is a faithful God. You know, Christians coming in the name of God and making this sort of promises. But the implication is, if the guy doesn't get healed, if the deal doesn't get closed, then, Hey, God, God didn't keep his promise. God then becomes unfaithful. But you see, what rubbish, what lies. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Now to prove the point that God is faithful and true to himself, even in judging the Jews, Paul quotes from Psalm 51. He says there, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Now, you know that this is David, king of uh, Israel, after he had committed adultery and murder. And, you know, Nathan the prophet comes and points his finger at him and, and he, he's convicted and he comes and he acknowledges his sin and God's rightful judgment upon him. Now, you see, Psalm 51 records David's confession. It does not record David's bargaining, you know, negotiation, argument with God. Right? I mean, Psalm 51 doesn't go, verse 1, Oh God, 
How can you judge me? You also must bear some responsibility, what? Verse 2. Who asked you to put this beautiful woman as my next door neighbor? And why you allow her to go and bathe when I'm walking on the roof? That's verse 2. Verse 3. And, hiya! Why you make my eyesight so good? You see? No, it's not, it's not some argument bargaining with God. Rather, David comes and acknowledges. Yes, God, even in judgment, God is showing his faithfulness. And so if this is the case, then the objector next argues in verse 5. Okay, 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 okay. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? Okay, in other words, they are saying, if our sin, our unrighteousness shows or magnifies God's righteousness when he judges us, then we are not the instruments of sin. We are actually instruments being used to magnify God's righteousness. So if we are instruments to magnify God's righteousness, then God would be unrighteous to condemn us because we are He's condemning the very instruments that magnify his righteousness. Okay? I mean, do you get what the argument is saying? <laughs> get it on. Grace, get it on. Don't get then I can repeat again. Repeat again. Okay, basically, when it comes to this point, Paul Yeah, because Andrew knows his argument. <laughs> Paul Paul anticipates that they will make this argument. I mean, because there's no real person standing up saying, right? But he's anticipating where the argument will go. So at this point in the argument, he is anticipating that they will say, okay, if you, Paul, claim that God is faithful, even when he judges us, because when he judges us, his faithfulness is, is shown, is exalted, then we are instruments not of sin. But when he judges us, we are instruments that actually give him the the platform for his righteousness to be exalted. Yeah. So, if that's the case, then won't God be unrighteous to judge us? I know, it sounds stupid, but that is the argument of a sinful heart. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, Paul's answer to that is... <clears throat> Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Now, when Paul says, how could God judge the world, he is referring to a truth that all Jews would agree on. All Jews believe that God would judge the world. Okay, So he's referring to a fundamental truth that they would all hold on to. Okay? But Paul is saying, uh, if if he is judging the world, how could he judge if judging made him unrighteous? Right, Because the Jewish objector is saying, okay, we are instruments that exalt God, so wouldn't he be unrighteous to judge the instruments that exalt him, his righteousness? But then Paul's answer, but God will judge the world. But if he's going to judge the world, then wouldn't it make him unrighteous to judge the world? According to your argument. Okay, that's what Paul is saying. 
So <clears throat> all of this is Paul's anticipation of how the Jews might argue as they try to escape the reality of God's righteous judgment on them. And then he says, right, he's speaking in a human way. Um, and he's saying, you know, I, the, the, the arguments that that's coming, that he's anticipating is a human argument, which is a stupid argument. Because all of our attempts to argue our way out of facing God's wrath, fundamentally stupid. So he next anticipates the objection in verse 7. If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Let us do evil that good may result. Right, so it's just a, uh, a more specific way of the previous argument. Right, if my, if my, if my falsehood makes God glorious, then let me keep sinning. Lah. Then God will, God's glory will be increased. So, what can you say to such stupid and perverse reasoning? Well, Paul simply says, what does he say? He says, go to hell. Go to hell! Good. I mean, Okay, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't say those exact three words, but he says what? Their condemnation is deserved. Yes. So, against all possible arguments, against God judging the Jews, God, uh, Paul has demonstrated that neither God's promises, nor his faithfulness, nor his justice is compromised in bringing judgment even against the Jews, his own people. God remains righteous. He remains true to himself. See, God is consistent. There are no loopholes. Now, what, what Paul is doing right in verses 1 to 8 is called a theodicy. He is defending God. Okay, Because in chapters 1 to 2, when he comes in and he shuts off all the escape routes. You know, people, the, the Jews, would have all these accusations against God, Accu- accusing him of being unrighteous, accusing him of being unfaithful, accusing him of not fulfilling his promise. But Paul, in these eight verses, has defended God's right to judge. And God, in judging, remains faithful. Uh, he has, it's a defense of God's right to judge. And now, none of us are Jews here. Lah. Okay, but the reason why Paul has gone on so long about the Jews is, hey, if even the Jews who are recipients of God's promises are going to be judged, then what about you? You sure no escape. Lah. That's the point. Lah. Right? Okay. So which is the thing that he goes on to next uh, where he now moves away from just talking about the Jews to talking about everyone. So he says in verse 9, What then are we Jews any better off? <clears throat> no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Right? All are under sin. Everyone, without exception, under the power of sin, under uh, being enslaved to sin under its power. See, it's not just the murderer, 
the rapist, the adulterer, you know, those God-haters, the Satanists, the, the lesbians, gays, whatever, who deliberately disobey God who are sinners. Right? We are all sinners. And to show that this verdict is not something that Paul invented while lying on the grass, looking up at the clock tower, thinking about life, uh, Paul goes on to quote several Old Testament passages. Okay, So he says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So basically he's saying, you can see the effect of sin. That the effect of sin on the human heart is that the heart turns away from God. There's no, there's no heart that seeks after God. And he goes on to say, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. So one effect of a heart that has turned away from God is speech, words, you know, a tongue that cannot please God. And then he moves on. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so hearts that have turned away, tongues that are bitter, will always result in this disruption, a lack of peace in human community. There is no true peace with sin in our hearts. And so Paul's point in, in bringing together these Old Testament passages is to demonstrate that the law itself says that all of mankind, Jew, Gentile, alike, under sin, is not something that Paul made up. Okay, who has gone against God? The law answers, everyone. And so, therefore, Paul concludes in verse 19. So now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So the law has established that the whole world is under sin. The whole world is under judgment. Right, under sin, under judgment. Now, I used to watch lawyer shows on TV, you know, those um, produced by America one, but now I don't watch American shows, I only watch Korean shows. But, but I used to watch those lawyer shows on TV, and, you know, you will never find a show where the defendant has nothing to say. Like, no matter how, you know, how much evidence the the prosecutor has against the defendant. The lawyer, the, def the lawyer for the defense will always stand up and will have always have something to say. I mean, the guy can be caught in the act murdering the woman and then, you know, recording everything. But then the lawyer still can stand up and say something. Okay? But here, Paul is saying, in God's courtroom, where all mankind, every single human being that's ever been created, row after row, from the brightest to the poorest, from the prettiest to the most moral, when God reads out his charge, not a single mouth will be open in defense. 
because there is no defense, because we will be as we will be guilty as charged. Right? Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law has no power to save. It doesn't bring salvation. It brings condemnation. You look to the law, it will tell you guilty, guilty, guilty. So the question is, um, do we, we accept it? Like how often are we aware in our consciousness of this verdict, that this is who we are, that we are sinners? Um, I know I'm speaking to a room of people who, you know, you've, you've, you, you know the gospel, you've accepted the gospel, um, and, and it may sound like this is a passage that would be good for some non-Christians to hear. You know, if only there were some non-Christians hearing this, and then they, they, that they would know, that they would see, you know, that, that they need Jesus, right? Yeah. But remember that Paul is writing this to Christians in Rome. And it is essential. It is an essential part of our daily cherishing the gospel. The essential part that we, we come to grips with this verdict. Right? Because it's, I mean, it's easy, like, it's easy to, okay, you know, because I, I do this or I'm not like that, that, you know, I've risen above, you know, in a certain way. But, you know, before we can appreciate and hold on to the gospel for what it is, the treasure that it is, we must remind ourselves that we are sinners. We must recognize what is reality. If not, we will never cherish the gospel as we are supposed to. Now, I want to end by um, sharing an illustration that I learned this week. It's actually an old illustration from uh, Francis Schaeffer. Uh, And it was his way of trying to help people understand that God judgment of them, God's verdict of them as sinners who don't meet his standards uh, is absolutely just, absolutely right. And he says, imagine everyone goes around in their life with an invisible voice recorder around their neck. And this voice recorder is not recording all the time. It is only activated by the word ought. So when you know, I'm having a discussion with Grace talking about, you know, Korean shows. It's not recording. Okay. But once I say, hey, Grace, uh, you ought to moderate your amount of K-drama. Ah, that, when he hears the word ought, what you ought to do, ah, then it will start recording. Okay. In other words, it will record what I think is the standard. So at the end of the day, when I appear before God's throne, you know, God can say, hey, you know, hey, are you a Christian? 
No. Oh, have you read the Bible? No. Oh, okay. It's okay. I'm a fair God. I'm a, I'm a fair guy. I won't judge you according to the standards that, you know, you didn't have a chance to hear. Let me judge you according to your own standards. And he will take the invisible recorder and it will play all the things that I believed ought to be done. That I say you ought to do. And none of us will even live up to what uh, we say ought to be done. Because none of us even fulfill our own standards, let alone God's holy standards. That's why the verdict of each and every human being uh, being under sin and therefore under judgment is one part of who we are uh, that we need to grapple with uh, and the people around us need to see that.